The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Stop the boats. Um, now, I'll briefly introduce our panel, but we're going to get to know them better as the panel progresses. So let me just firstly introduce them for you. So uh, across from me, Ross Cameron. Ross is here primarily in his capacity of having served uh, three terms under the Howard Coalition government uh, at a time when the whole question of people arriving by boat reached some prominence. Uh, there in the middle, Katie Wrigley. Katie is a solicitor working with, and I want to make sure I get the name exactly correct, uh, working with the Refugee Advice and Casework Service, or RACS for short. Uh, some information about them is also available at the back. And on my immediate left, Greg Lake. And Greg had the distinction of uh, serving this country through managing detention centres in offshore uh, processing uh, centres. So uh, uh, very much an on-the-ground knowledge of this topic. So will you please welcome... Uh, panel. Now, this is obviously a very emotive topic. Uh, the whole question of people arriving, perhaps illegally, by boat to this country has been a political football over the last well, 10 years or so that I can recall. Both sides of politics has, have sought to score points as to who is tougher on people arriving by boat. But it's actually nothing new in this country. People have been arriving by boat for quite some time. Um, I gather, uh, I might be corrected here, but I gather at least since the mid-70s with a wave of Vietnamese coming. Would that be right? Yeah. And obviously going further back, uh, we're quite a migrant nation. So I asked this question yesterday. I'll ask it again. Um, hands up if either you were born overseas or you have one parent <coughs> who was born overseas. Okay. So... Probably, what would you say, about 50, 60% of the audience? Probably more yesterday, actually, but about that. Yep. So we're all familiar with the whole question of uh, arriving as migrants in this country. But okay, let's, let's get to some of the facts initially. Uh, I might ask you, Greg, so can you um, enlighten us as to what sort of numbers are we dealing with, who's coming, how are they coming, those sorts of things? Yeah, um, over the course of... There's been two real recent waves, if you like. One of them was in the late 1990s, kind of stopping with a with a grinding halt in 2001 uh, following the Tampa incident and a few things that followed that. Um, in that wave, if you like, there was something like maybe 10 or 12,000 over the course of um, mm -hmm. a few years. Then a second wave, which has been a much bigger wave over the period pretty much from 2008 uh, following the Labor government's election uh, through till now, if you like, um, which has been more in the vicinity of 35,000 or so spread in out in total over right. those over that. And period. the demographic, what well, are the sort of profile of people coming? Yeah, the vast majority of people in this second wave have been Afghans, Iranians, Iraqis, and Sri Lankans. Um, there's always a smattering, if you don't mind me calling it that, of other nationalities and other people from other places, but they're certainly the biggest cohorts, if you like. Uh, there's definitely other populations, like there's a Rohingyan population who've arrived, uh, Rohingyan being a minority ethnic group in uh, Myanmar or Burma, and, uh, and other groups like that where there might be 80 or 90 or you know, 
so many like that um, from other nationalities. And Katie, would that be, from Greg's description, you'd agree with that in terms of the profile of your clients and who you're dealing with? Yeah, that's right. We're seeing particularly um, Afghans, people from Iraq, um, people from Sri Lanka. Those would be some common nationalities. Um, Christians from Iran, they would be some of the common clients that RACs would see. And traditionally, they've left their home country um, sometimes flown by plane to um, Dubai, then Jakarta, and then come right by boat from Indonesia or through Malaysia to Australia. Okay. So this passage of getting from those countries to Australia, you're saying leg one, you make your way to Asia. Leg two, you hop on a boat and come to Australia. So that's obviously saying it very simply. Can you sort of enlighten, Greg, what does someone go through to achieve that travel? Yeah. Um, one of the things I noticed working with asylum seekers as closely as I did is that every story is different. Um, but typically what will happen is someone will flee a location either to another part of their own country or out of their country. Say an Afghan might cross the border into Pakistan and it's at that point that they'll engage the services of a people smuggler, usually met through a contact or in a marketplace or something, uh, who'll offer them um, an option to go somewhere. Um, they might offer them quite a few options sometimes. Uh, that person, if they can get the money together, if you like, or if they can borrow the money either off the smuggler or someone else, will then organise the entire passage through um, to Australia or if they go somewhere else to somewhere else. But that the smuggling operation is one operation or one network which then facilitates the entire journey, typically. Okay. And Ross, was when you were in government uh, in the earlier wave, was that also representative of how Greg and Katie have described it? Um, yeah, I think what you saw was a combination of um, <clears throat> demographic groups who found themselves in the midst of usually civil strife. Yep. Um, and then you found, um, you know, others, once it became clear <clears throat> that the boat strategy was effective, you saw this kind of momentum effect take place. Mm -hmm. And so there was a fairly significant argument among policymakers about, I mean, for a long period of time, for example, the former Labor government said there are no pull factors involved. Mm. That all of this is a phenomena of so-called so push, push factors. Um, but I think uh, the government's view that, you know, Australia, unlike Europe, uh, Australia actually has the capability to control its borders. And so then you've got, just got a policy decision to make. Are you going to do that or not? And so uh, all I would say is that the argument is not so much are we pro-migration. I'm massively pro-migration. I want a big Australia. Uh, it's a question of do you want Australians to be making the decisions about who comes or, you know, our government's view, the alternative was to allow a, a sort of a criminal conspiracy of people smugglers from Afghanistan through Southeast Asia uh, to, to Australia. Yep. So maybe we'll just quickly on that. Um, <coughs> it's obviously one of a number of ways that people come to this country. What, what sort of proportion are we saying of the total migrants we're taking in are being represented by so-called boat people? Well, uh, the first thing I say when anyone, when anyone asks me that question is that every year there's 4.8 million border crossings into Australia. 4.8 million, and that's everybody, including tourists, people here for business trips, people who are coming to permanently migrate. It's an enormous number of people who cross our border. 
And as I gave the numbers before, if there's 50,000 who've arrived by boat, it gives you a sense as to how many crossings there are by boat compared to by plane or cruise ship, if you want to put them in a different category. But if you factor out tourists and business people... Yeah, the migration program usually sits between 380,000 and 400,000 for people who are here for a period of time beyond 12 months. So that includes students, for example, who are here often for three or four years to study. Um, but it's a, it's a large program, and that, that program fluctuates... Um, as, as the needs of our, for example, And if economy. we narrow it further down to those who are here for permanent residency? Yeah, I think it sits at about, I'm not sure, it's about 200,000. I think it's my understanding it's about, um, we accept about half the number of um, refugees that we accept through our offshore resettlement program as what we accept through our onshore um, refugee program. Mm-hmm. And again, it's about similar numbers between plane and boat arrivals. That's for people seeking asylum, is it? But generally migrants, skilled workers? Net migration uh, it, over the past five years has been between about 140 and 200,000. Okay, so we're talking here about in the order of 10 odd percent of those we receive as migrants here that are potentially coming in Correct. by... Okay. All right, good, just to get into sort of... Let, let's change tack slightly, and I should say that feel free to send through any questions that I receive here, and I'm more than happy to put them to the panel. Um, can we talk about people who fly here? Um, is that worth a discussion? Katie? Yeah, look, it's often overlooked that the fact that people have come by plane, um, they're often not referred to as queue jumpers or as illegal entrants because they're coming on a valid visa. But if they are asylum seekers, they are affected by exactly the same reasons as to why they're fleeing their home countries as people who come by boat. So people who come by plane are a slightly different demographic from those who asylum seekers who come by boat. And when we're looking at that, uh, that group of people, it's worth looking at the statistics of how many are eventually accepted to be genuine refugees by the decision-making bodies in Australia. Um, but I don't think it's worth... Uh, drawing a line or dividing refugees into legal and illegal, I think that really strips them of their stories and their vulnerabilities and um, makes people who feel compassion to asylum seekers um, acute, you know, we look naive by if we do feel some compassion towards them. Sorry, Ross? Well, just from a policy standpoint, the, two, the practical, uh, you know, from a government standpoint, <coughs> we approve about um, 20% of the claims of those who arrive by plane, whereas in Australia, it's a much higher percentage of those who arrive by boat, or has been historically. Um, The two uh, main reasons for that is those who arrive by plane overwhelmingly arrive with their documents. So they're much, it's much more, we are much more capable of validating and verifying uh, statements. Uh, And secondly, those who arrive by plane uh, have not, by definition, had to be implicated in this sort of wider criminal conspiracy. Although you're saying <coughs> that the success rate for those coming by plane is less. That's right. Despite the fact that they've got valid papers and... That's right. And so what it shows, whereas those, most of those coming by boat have arrived in Indonesia or Malaysia with travel documents and papers by plane. They have then destroyed those documents and gotten in a boat. And so they arrive here for assessment without any documents. Now, under the previous um, process, I think, well, certainly Scott Morrison would say there was a kind of a benefit of the doubt or assumption in favour of claims made 
in the absence of documents. Uh, the government's increasingly... But, but one of the other consequences was it significantly protracted the evaluation process. Is that, would you agree with that, Katie, that the odds are better if you destroy your papers? Absolutely not. Look, the drafters of the convention recognise that it's not possible to get documents for many asylum seekers. That's why they, they put in the convention a clause that says that you should not penalise an asylum seeker based on their mode of arrival. So it's an exception similar to allowing an ambulance to drive very fast in an emergency. These are the rules normally, but in this instance, you're allowed to break them. And the reason that most asylum seekers don't have documents is usually because the main agent of the persecution, like the persecutors that they are afraid of, is essentially the government. So they're not able to apply for a passport, apply for a visa. Um, so it's our experience that people aren't destroying what documents they have en route to Australia. The documents they, they may or may not obtain are not, are not valid ones. They were ones that they were required to get in desperate circumstances. We, sorry, we've just got a very quick one to clarify. Mm -hmm. uh, legal question. Can you just distinguish what is a refugee and what is asylum seeker? Yeah, so a, a refugee is someone who has been accepted to meet the definition of a refugee under the Convention. So they have a well-founded fear of persecution for one of five reasons usually to do with their ethnicity, their religion, their political opinion. Um, the, uh, an asylum seeker is someone who is claiming asylum in a third country, or, or not their home country, but is, um, is waiting for their claims to be assessed. Okay, good. I might just change text and keep the questions coming. How did you, and I'll ask each of you, how did you actually experience all this firsthand and why did you get involved? So, so maybe start uh, with you, Katie. Uh, Presumably you could practice other areas of law and earn more money. Uh, why devote yourself for a good number of years now to the sort of work you do? Um, well, I first came into this jurisdiction when I was um, working at Legal Aid, actually, and I started volunteering with RACS when they were doing statements for people who had temporary protection visas back at the first temporary protection visa um, phase. And I came to meet asylum seekers face-to-face -face and take down their claims and hear their stories, and I just found it really... Um, a totally different world from what I had ever experienced before in terms of clients in Australia, the level of, um, uh, I guess, I think it, I, I found that a lot of the asylum seekers were quite dignified in having overcome quite a high level of adversity and their uh, selflessness in terms of just concern for their family members, um, the, the stories that they would tell were quite humbling in terms of their ability to be resourceful to act in a protective way for those they, they care about. So you're um, really drawn into it to support them and help them? Yeah, I was drawn into supporting them and helping them. Mm. And Ross, you were sharing earlier that in your electorate in Parramatta, it's a very diverse electorate and you were constantly exposed to these things. Can you share a bit more about yeah. that? Well, most, most, I suspect, if I were to ask the number of people in this room who have been, who can name and have been into the office of their local member of parliament, <laughs> Seeking guidance or assistance, it would be it would be very uh, a low number. We won't ask. Okay. But where you do get this impetus to go and see the local member is in relation the federal member is in relation to a migration outcome. Mm -hmm. <coughs> and so, excuse me, see the Parramatta, about forty five percent speak a language other than English at home. And so, <coughs> all of those people are engaged in migration related almost all of them, in trying to, from just getting a visitor visa. Um, <clears throat> so a classic example would be, I had two Sri Lankan IT professionals getting married at a service at which there were 500 people attending, 
but the parents of the groom were rejected for a visitor visa. Um, so then you have this crisis where you're trying to avoid the humiliation of a family that the Australian government doesn't trust their parents to come. But I would say, so then I got all, I had one staff who did nothing but migration-related work and I would have done at least sort of 20 hours a week in the skilled, the family reunion and the humanitarian. And did the parents get to go to the wedding? On, that, on this occasion they did, yeah. They yeah. did, yeah. And in fact it led to... Um, I mean, at, at the risk of uh, greater self-indulgence than <laughs> usual, uh, I did a deal uh, with Philip Ruddock under which I said, I want you to create a sort of informal visa category for me, which you will continue to award so long as the applicants comply with the terms of the, of, of the award. And that resulted in me becoming uh, the getting the highest number of positive outcomes for migration-related inquiries out of 226 members of parliament, which actually produced an inquiry, which was a bit difficult for me at the time. So but, you became known as the patron of weddings? Or... Uh, well, <laughs> you know, everyone... Um, the, the, the migration pro process is legally intensive and complex. And so... And frankly, I've had people stood on the other side of me on several occasions and just say, Ross, just tell us whatever we have to do to get the outcome, you just tell us what it is. If that means putting an envelope in somebody's hand, if that means, you know, something, you just tell us what we have to people, do. People are desperate. To avoid going back yeah. in many cases. So, Greg, um, managing a detention centre, it's probably not on many people's CV. How did, how did you find yourself in that position? It was a complete accident, I'll be purely honest with you. So I actually took a job with the Department of Immigration because it was the first job I got offered, having spammed a whole bunch of uh, Canberra agencies with my relatively scant CV. And um, I'm not joking, immigration was just the first job I got offered. It was in skilled migration initially, worked in that for a little while, then went on a secondment, did some research at the Senate, came back from that and said, I want to go somewhere a bit different, a bit interesting, a bit challenging. And they said, have we got the location for you? Have you heard of Christmas <laughs> Island? And so they sent me to Christmas Island. And uh, suddenly I found myself right in the thick of an issue that I actually had no interest in, no views on. I was a punter from northern Sydney with actually very little experience with migrant communities at all. I just didn't know what I thought. So what did you experience? Well, when I was there, I was forced to confront this question of how do you handle... Um, irregular maritime arrival policy, but I was forced to confront it out, almost in a vacuum from the political and media discussion that went on and goes on back on the mainland. And I was dealing with it by having one of my teams actually coordinate what happens when someone steps off that funny little barge you see on telly onto the jetty and goes through first day processing. So suddenly I, f I was forced to confront the humanity of this issue in a way that I'm, I feel very fortunate to have done, actually. Not many people get to actually deal so closely with asylum seekers who are in detention. It's, it's, it's quite a privilege, actually, to have met people in that circumstance and learned from them. So a similar story, in a way, to, to Katie there. Hmm. But ultimately, you resigned. I probably got paid better, by the way. <laughs> I did uh, resign. Yeah, yeah so um, what, what led you to resign? What I found was that the people I was dealing with were real people. And as a Christian... Um, my view is that people matter. People are valuable. And the reason they matter is because they're made in the image of God 
and God values them, and as God values them, I'm called to value them. But I don't think you can think that people matter only if you're a Christian. I think a lot of people arrive at the conclusion that all public policy needs to have that at its foundation. And what I discovered as we transitioned from sort of 2010 mid-Labor government policy to a policy of deterrence was that the best deterrence governments could think of was to treat people inhumanely and actually remove hope from their circumstances. And it meant my professional obligation was to implement that. And I felt that came into conflict with my own faith and it led to my resignation last year. Right. I might pick that one up with you, Ross, because um, you see things a bit differently in terms of the policy that's been adopted. Um, do you find tensions with your underlying sort of worldview and how we should treat people with dignity and possibly made in the image of God, as, as Greg indicated? Um, well, I think there's plenty of times uh, where politics, the ultimate decision maker, is not offered a choice between uh, sort of an ethically comfortable policy and uh, a really problematic one. Very often, there is no easy answer. And I would say this is a classic example and where I would be deeply disappointed that Greg left his post and I think he should go back um, because we need guys like Greg in there. So you've got a job, mate. But <laughs> the point for me, I, I mean, I'm here not as an advocate of the Howard government or the Abbott government or of the Liberal Party, but in a sense as a citizen. Okay? I'm not paid to be here. I'm here at giving you the, my best account of my own view, which was forged in part by watching the number of drownings just continue to grow and grow and grow. And I remembered, I thought there was a moment where a, where a number of guys in the ALP peeled off during the, the Gillard era. On the 19th of December 2011, you can look up the story, uh, another one in this sequence, we were at that stage about 600 drowned and you had four busloads of 60 people pulled up at a Javanese fishing village loaded into a boat, which, was a dis which is a disposable part of the commercial package of the people smugglers, a fishing boat, which had a big empty hull for the fish, into which were loaded the first 140, uh, and then on the deck another 100. So you had 240 people on a fishing vessel, which was designed for a crew of 12 and a bunch of fish, six life jackets... Uh, so 70, 70 nautical miles offshore, they ran into the first waves and a sort of an estuary of shoreline-based vessel just immediately flipped the entire inner hull, 140 people. Not one of those emerged. They were just all immediately drowned. So then on the deck, you've got another 100 sharing six life jackets, 70 nautical miles offshore. Uh, eventually, 20, 20 survivors were uh, plucked out of the water, out of 240, uh, clinging to the six life jackets which had only been issued to the crew. So there were six crew who survived, 14 non-crew, all of whom were male. So it's clear that... So I'm saying a, a... your issue, you're sitting there thinking, having struggling to implement a deterrent policy... I'm saying if I had put you on the, vet, the rescue vessels that had to pick up the 220 floating corpses, 
you, you may have a different feeling about the deterrent policy, right? But the ultimate decision maker has got to see all of those facts. So I think what we're hearing is that you're coming at it from two angles, but with the same objective of how we can be loving to those who arrive. You're concerned with the passage and uh, you're concerned with how we're humanely treating them here onshore or offshore. Um, Katie, do you see it as a tension between these two things as to how we can be compassionate, bearing in mind both the story Ross told and also what Greg shared? Yes, and I think that it always helps to just, um, you know, change the focus somewhat and have a look at history and how things have panned out previously. Um, I think there's a good reason why the Pacific Solution was renamed the Pacific Strategy because some of these um, solutions that have been proposed really are quite short-term deterrence measures. A good example of something that did actually work was Malcolm Fraser's initiative after the Vietnam War, for example, where it went a little bit beyond just deterrence and didn't say, let's just bank up refugees or let's just um, you know, have them waiting in, for example, Indonesia, where they'll be remain, remaining there, and Indonesia will continue to see them as Australia's problem, which is currently what the policy involves. But it involved developing you know, a memorandum of understanding with other countries, including America. So there were around 200,000 refugees that ended up with a durable solution out of that initiative. They didn't all end up in Australia. They ended up in America or, or Australia. But they weren't just banking up at the source area. There was actually a durable and permanent solution that was proposed that allowed the problem to have a solution rather than just stopping, uh, putting a plug and developing, developing allowing the, the problem to fester at the other end. So um, are you advocating, therefore, that we shouldn't have mandatory detention in offshore processing centres? Um, well, I guess that's a different question. My position on mandatory detention is no, I don't think we should. I think we should treat people who've come by boat similar to how we treat people who come by plane after an initial short-term what's required to do health and, health and, safe, health and character checks. Um, but offshore processing, no. I think at the moment we, are, we have a duty of care to a generation of asylum seekers who are coming to Australia and to force them onto a series of poor neighbouring countries um, will involve um, more and more of what we're seeing at the moment, which is uh, needless inefficiencies onshore. So people have to wait for years, five years, for no good reason, where, it take, where in fact if we were to start processing them it would take a much shorter period and human rights abuses to those who... Uh, are going through that. So we're seeing suicides, we're seeing suicide attempts, self-harm attempts, we're seeing, um, yeah, a series of atrocities. But uh, I'll come to you, Greg, because if we were to uh, change the policy and not have offshore processing in, in detention centres, uh, wouldn't that uh, open the floodgates again? Because as you've said earlier, um, really the whole point of that became a deterrent strategy. It wasn't actually necessary. So aren't we then back to the problem that Ross was explaining? Yeah, um, and I think to give weight to that thought is it's exactly what happened when the Labor government deconstructed the Pacific solution and didn't replace it with anything. So we saw them deconstruct it through 2007 and 2008, and in 2009 the numbers started arriving in their thousands again. And I think that's because they didn't say, OK, the boats have stopped albeit um, a few years before they were elected, under the, the Howard government had stopped the boats. OK, here we are. Now let's implement a new policy which maintains the humanity of quick processing, good legal accesses, the value of human life, but at the same time provides genuine alternatives to people who are fleeing their country and in transit who can't find access to a UNHCR-run 
um, refugee camp in Western Kenya or similar. So looking at it and saying there are people on the move, some of those, say a southern Sudanese Christian, has an option to sit, and albeit it's not a very nice situation, in a refugee camp in a country. Many of the people who arrive, most if not all of the people who arrive by boat in Australia don't have that option. And we need to have a discussion now that the boats have stopped about how do we create genuine options for people like that that involve something other than an inhumane offshore processing detention centre or a boat. So that's the question here, exactly that. How do we work towards a solution that avoids suffering, whether drowning at sea or being inhumanely treated? Um, so at the risk of repeating yourself, Katie, what is the alternate solution? Look, there's, there's no real easy solutions, and it does involve... Um I guess, governments working with other countries and negotiations. But the fact that we've signed up to the convention doesn't mean that we should just leave it at that. But there's, there's always a scope to develop other agreements with other countries, to develop other memorandums of understanding or look at re regional resettlement options closer to our region. And I think that anything that is sensibly within our power is something that the government should focus its energies towards. That I'm, I'm not advocating continuing you know, ignoring deaths at sea. I think that anything constructive that can be looked at to develop a durable and, uh, solution for, for the refugees involved is something that we should direct our efforts towards. But um, so far, if we turn our attentions only to deterrence measures and in the process alienate you know, a range of nations, if we don't abide by our international obligations, it becomes harder for us to expect other countries to do the same, to join in and pitch in and, and do their share. Did you want to add anything quickly to that, Ross? Well, I mean, I would respectfully say um, it's not an answer. You know, if if you, the, the blunt truth is, if you are going to offer onshore processing for boat arrivals, lots of people are going to drown. And we know that for an absolute fact. And frankly, the unwillingness of a wide circle of advocates to take any responsibility for 1,200 drownings. When those 220 drowned in a direct natural response to Australian migration policy settings, and Sarah Hansen-Young was asked, does that cause you to reconsider your commitment to onshore processing? She said, of course not. Accidents happen. Now, I frankly regard that as disgusting. And what you see is a fetishising, is a fetishising of the refugee issue by the left, who sort of, in my opinion, kind of lost, largely lost the economic argument, got mugged by reality. And is it equally the case, perhaps, that, um, and feel free to direct to the other panel members, that on the right, perhaps, we're tapping into a, a certain latent racism and fear of Well, that's the, the obvious foreigner. fear. This is the fear, okay? The criticism of the right, and I would ask people, the criticism is of the right, if you like, is that uh, deaths at sea have been sort of used. Yeah. Um, secondly, or as I say, if you, if you, I mean, we held a royal commission into pink bats because we lost four white guys, but we're basically saying we're happy to lose a 1,000 non-white guys, and, and that's business as usual. Um, but um, secondly, there is a feeling that the political leadership is kind of playing to the day Ray Hadley, Daily Telegraph, Redneck, Pauline Hanson. 
Now, and the point that I want to make about that is the very first signatory to the UN Convention on Refugees was Denmark. Okay, Denmark's, the Denmark People's Party is the hardcore Le Pen-style right-wing nationalistic anti-immigration party, which has just topped the polls last week in the European Parliament election because Denmark, like most of the rest of Europe, France, the sceptic party, and immigration topped the poll, as did Greece, because Europe has lost control of its borders and people feel vulnerable. So you ha if you're going to take the people with you, you have to run a firm, fair migration policy. Well, clearly that says something about human nature and our inability to accept the other, someone who is different to us. And uh, right at the heart of this topic is it loving to stop the boats. Uh, we are concerned with you know, a question of how do we love the other. Um, Greg, how, how do you sort of reconcile this in light of this Denmark example and perhaps the latent um, <coughs> phobia that we have about you know, foreigners and anyone who is different to us? Um, before I answer that, can I say that I was on Christmas Island when the boat crash happened in December of 2010 and am acutely aware of the danger of the voyages and absolutely share your sentiment that any solution that doesn't and I hate the word solution because it's been politicised. Any solution to this issue that doesn't acknowledge that pull factors exist is a, a substandard solution. Doesn't work. It has to do both. I appreciate that. And I think one of the challenges um, that we have to confront in order to allow people the space to come to terms with the different, to come to terms with the other, is first to acknowledge that it's not always racism. When, when you come across something in your life that's not something you've ever seen before... It's all right to be confused by it, to be challenged by it, and to need, feel a sense that you either need to learn more about it or leave it. And I don't think that itself is inherently a racist approach or attitude. I think what we've learned, actually, over a period of time is that um, multiculturalism or cultural diversity itself has enriched Australia's society in a way that we, can't, we couldn't replicate through another policy. And I think if we can begin to translate issues like just because you came by boat means you shirked the process, you queue-jumped. Um, if we can teach people that there's no queue like at Medicare or the bank. It's, it's not, the people aren't waiting in a queue and they go, oh, I can see a gap and that teller just opened. You know? It's not like that. There isn't an option available. I wish, I wish it was that easy. Yeah. If it was, it would be great. I mean, and I'd be totally against the queue jumper like yeah. I am at Medicare or the bank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's not what's going on here. There's not the option available to people. This is their only option to survive. And I think as long as people learn to understand that, then those of us who have stories where we have dealt with the Department of Immigration over periods of years and thousands of dollars sometimes to organise for our family to come and join us in the country. People who have gone through legitimate processes, as long as they learn that the people we're talking about aren't people who had that option available to them, that will help to build that understanding. So we've only got a couple of minutes left, and thank you for the questions that have come through. So I might just ask each of you to, to have a few closing remarks. And Katie, um, feel free to say what you want, but I'm interested also to hear, is it really about educating Australian society about how we are responding to people who are different? Well, I think uh, there's a couple of ideas that I would have. One would be uh, to stop detaining asylum seekers in remote locations where they're so far away from the community. If they lived in the community, I think more Australians would have the chance to know more about them 
um, and to discover that they're not the threat that is suggested, that they don't really mean to cause our society harm, that they are in fact people fleeing persecution and their motivation is not you know, money or a criminal motivation, it's, it's to, to get to a place of safety. Um, secondly, I think that politicians need to take some of the responsibility to stop um, cr creating, I guess, the, the fears in relation to asylum seekers by referring to them as illegals or referring to them as criminals or as having significant concerns for their, their character or, or, or their threats to our national security when it's just not borne out by the statistics. I think looking at the statistics of how many people arrive by boat and how many are eventually accepted as, as genuine refugees, you would have to say that the majority of people coming by boat are fleeing persecution and the majority of people coming by boat mean cause, cause no co um, reason for concern to, to us. So bearing in mind that the majority are genuinely fleeing persecution and that they have broken no law by coming here in the way they do and that they cause us no threat, I think the essential question for us is what's our response to a person in that situation? And at the end of the day, our answer to what's a decent human response to a person in that situation will define who we are. And is it a question of do unto others as we would have them to do unto us? Ross? Well, um, you know, the, the, if we want to talk about is it loving, uh, you know, the Bible contains a range. Uh, and if, if our reference is if the reference of, say, this... I know this is a mixed audience. Not everybody would share the same assumptions. But, I mean, Jesus also said, you know, of, the poor will be with you always. Uh, he said of wars and rumours of war, there will be no end. Um, one of the most... What we have learnt, particularly in the 20th century, from, you know, the, 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 the little black book of Marxism shows 100 million ineffective murders as a consequence of Marxism spread across the century, according to the best scholars. That's because uh, a kind of idealistic, on one level, uh, group of people got together and set an unrealistic standard, which turned out to be an incredibly lethal and dangerous policy which destabilised the earth. Um, there, a ruler, you know, has got to make hard decisions on behalf of the... And I don't think it's fair to assume that those who are opposed to, for example, boat arrivals are inherently racist or bigoted or, you know, in many cases, all of those families from non-English-speaking backgrounds, the biggest supporters of a tough migration policy were those who have applied for a family to come under the, skilled, under the family reunion or skilled migration and been rejected because we have a tough policy and we expect skilled migrants to hit a high standard of capability. And when they have got 97 out of 100 points because their English wasn't quite up to scratch and they see 40,000 boat arrivals, it causes a breakdown. Although we did establish it's only 10 to 20% of the total migration. That's right. But, but, but whatever the number is, if you have been rejected, it doesn't make you a racist or a bigot to say to the government, I want to know that these standards are being applied equally. And when you've got 20% of those arriving by plane being getting a migration outcome, you've got something like 70 to 75% of those arriving by boat, and when the principle, they come from the same source, but the principal difference is one has migration documents and the other one doesn't, if you take the same group who are landing right now, Greece has got a million unauthorised arrivals because everybody trying to migrate to Europe 
from the Middle East, from Asia and from Africa is stage pointing in Greece. Now, as a consequence, you've had this massive growth in hardcore right-wing sovereignty, nationalist, anti-immigration style parties. Now, we have got to, if you don't want to see, Pauline Hanson was in effect a response to something which will be renewed and which has now been strengthened all over Europe because of the failure to control borders. And that's, that's the government has that obligation and cannot surrender it uh, to a, while the applicant is not a criminal, uh, the, the whole exercise to ferry these people down to that Javanese fishing village from which the 220 drowned, um, all of those people are criminals. Yeah. So there is a justice question. Uh, time has, has gone, so I'm just quickly, Greg, um, your final word. Um, I think for all Australians that I meet, and I'm one of them too, we resonate with the idea that says an orderly migration program needs to happen because boats are dangerous, which is the champion line of the current government. We also resonate with the idea that what goes on with having 1,138 children in detention offshore just doesn't feel right. And for most of us, we sit somewhere in the middle and just don't know what to do. My experience has been the best way to inform yourself is not to listen to politicians and not to read academics, but to get to know an asylum seeker. World Vision have a program called Welcome to My Place, which is running during Refugee Week, which is later this month. What it does is it says you sit down with a meal with a refugee. Get to know their story. That'll inform your views on this better than anything you're going to hear at a panel like this. And I think it's a great way to just ground your political views in the lives of the people who've been affected by these policies. Well, join me, please, in thanking our panel today. I've just got two things to bring to your attention. Uh, we've talked a lot about what is the right compassionate, loving response. Uh, so come back over the next three weeks as we delve into this topic of love. What does it mean to love our enemies? What does it mean to love our neighbour? And who is our neighbour? And what does it mean that we should love God? So that's over the next three weeks with Ian Powell. Uh, so do come, uh, lunchtime here, same time, 10 past one. And finally, um, especially if you're new with us, if you just drop down an email address, we'll make sure that you receive information about these forthcoming events. And of course, any feedback is welcome and suggestions for subsequent topics we also welcome. So thanks for that. And hopefully... Uh, you can stay dry. Have a good afternoon. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.